Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author and voodoo priestess Lilith Dorsey, who joined me to discuss her new book, Orishas, Goddesses and Voodoo Queens. Lilith has been a magical practitioner for nearly 30 years, with training involving initiations in Santeria, also known as Lakumi, Haitian Voodon, and New Orleans Voodoo. She is also the editor of the Ocean African Magical Quarterly, as well as an accomplished filmmaker and choreographer. Her new book explores the concept of the divine feminine in African religious traditions, and how it was understood and venerated both in Africa as well as in the Caribbean and United States, where new magical practices emerged as a result of the diaspora of those people who were transported to the New World as victims of the slave trade, and used ingenious methods to preserve their spiritual identity. It was a pleasure and a privilege to talk with Lilith about these fascinating subjects. Enjoy the episode. Lilith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited. To begin with, can we just talk a little bit about your background and your own introduction to voodoo and some of the African traditional religions that you discuss in the book? I, I mean, I always think I was brought up with some sort of, you know, magical mindset, upbringing and things like that. But it wasn't a formalized voodoo education, I think, because of the time, a lot of stuff was more hidden than it is now. You know, it really wasn't safe to talk about some of these traditions to the extent that it's more safe today. It's not 100% safe, but I think that, you know, we're finally at a point where people aren't recoiling in horror every time they hear the word voodoo, you know. So I started out practicing more of traditional witchcraft. And then when my daughters were born, I wanted something that really celebrated their African American heritage. And, you know, I was, I started out in school doing film. And then when my daughter was born, I had to move and I shifted to anthropology. So I was really excited about the cultural anthropology of voodoo and hoodoo and all the other African traditional religions. And it seemed like almost at the same time I started to really study that and research that at school and uh, we published our own newsletter the Oshun newsletter which was like you know available for free and everybody could have this positive information and then I met my first priestess priestess Miriam who runs the New Orleans Voodoo Spiritual Temple here uh, where I live in New Orleans now so and I just sort of continued from there. I ended up joining other African traditional religions, Lukumi, which most people know as Santeria, and uh, Haitian Vodou. Um, my priestess there is Mambo Bonnie Devlin, who a lot of people know through her drumming work and her sort of advocacy work with drumming as healing and, you know, some of the stuff that she's done. So, yeah, it's been a wild ride, but it's been wonderful. And, and it was really great to be able to find to the best of my ability, the truth about these glorious traditions that had been so maligned. Mm, so what was it about these traditions that you really connected with? I think that there is, and, and people are going to think this is wacky, but I, I think that there is sort of a mindset of 
having alternative modes of dealing with trauma. You know, I mean, a lot of black people have gone through trauma. This is something we're seeing a lot in the world today. And I think that, you know, these religions were born out of slavery and oppression and things like that. And they really gave practitioners other resources that they wouldn't have had. And, and I think, unfortunately, that's the reason it gets a lot of its negativity because, you know, if you're in a situation where you're oppressed and enslaved and somebody's harming you and your children and your parents, you know, and there's a spell that you could do if you get some of their hair or there's an Arisha or a Loa that you could pray to to get justice, then that's what we were doing because it was something that was very, very, you know, hard to live through and, and almost a miracle in my mind that anybody made it through. So I think that's a testament to the power of these religions, even though they were suppressed. So that's one of the beautiful things that I think about the tradition. And another thing I also think that's that's really special, and a lot of my God kids have told me, you know, who study with me have told me this is why they joined the tradition. But the fact that we have a different sense of ancestors or egungun, as they're called in some of the traditions, and it's really that they just sort of it's not that they're gone forever. It's not a, you know, sort of a Christian concept of, you know, they're dead and we put them away. They really sort of have an active part in our lives, not in the sense of seeing ghosts, but in the sense of we leave them offerings, we celebrate them, you know, on our ancestor altar or Bovida, you know, we sort of incorporate them still into our daily lives. And that allows them, even though they're not here in their physical form, it allows them to still be part of our existence in a new and different way. Hmm. That sounds kind of similar to animism. Would that be a correct description of the African traditions that informed voodoo? I think so. I mean, I think there's this concept of Ashe that I talk a lot about in the book, which is a sort of universal life force energy that permeates all things. So if we're talking about one of the Orisha and the Lakumi traditions, such as Oshun, she's simultaneously the sacred energy that comes from a sunflower or comes from a piece of gold or comes from the river, which is where, you know, she's found in, in all representations. So I think it's definitely not a Western way of thinking. It, it could be, you know, likened to animism because there is this sort of sacredness to all things and, and sacredness to all levels of things in every way. And that just, I think, allows us to see the world in a more spiritual context. You know, I'm not just sitting on the edge of, of some river. I'm sitting next to this beautiful ancient energy that's been there throughout time. Hmm. The the focus of your new book is the the entities, the Arishas and the Lois. Can you just talk a little bit about them? Sure. I think that this is something that people have been, you know, sort of, of some of us have just been hearing about it and some of us have known about it, you know, for decades. But and some of us were brought up in the tradition. But <clears throat> excuse me for us, it's that, you know, Arisha comes from, and this is how I break it down linguistically. Some people have other ideas, you know, when we get into word origins, it can be a little tricky sometimes. But for me, it breaks down to Ori, which means head, and Sha, which is sort of the root word of Ashe, the concept that I just talked about. So it's that each of these sacred energies, sacred forces are guiding us through our heads 
to everybody has their own one are, are guiding us throughout each and every day. I mentioned Oshun. So because I've been had divination and it's been determined that I'm a daughter of Oshun, that means that I see the world in a different way. You know, rivers are going to have a different effect on me, her sacred things, her sacred foods, such as honey and whatnot. I mean, I love honey <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> these are going to have a different effect on me than other things people, you know, who might have a different head spirit. So for us, it's really a guiding force throughout our life. And I think something that's also difficult for people who grew up in, in Western traditions to understand is that there's not just one Arisha or one Loa. Some people say there's 101 or 1,001, and that's really as many as you can imagine, and then add one more because you might have forgot about someone or a new a new energy might have been made. And, and part of the concept behind it is that, you know, once we passed, I mentioned the ancestors, if enough people love us and still honor us and feed us and do ceremonies to us after we've passed, we can get more and more elevated, eventually, you know, rising up through these levels and, and maybe even someday becoming an Orisha. If we look back in the historical records, there's an Orisha called Shango, who many people are, are familiar with as the Lord of Fire and the ashe of that kind of fire energy. And he goes back, you know, there's 400 BCE, there's records of, of King Shango being an actual person who lived in uh, what is now Nigeria and uh, had his kingdom there. So it's this concept of we can become divine throughout our works in life and, and throughout the things that we do even after we've passed and the people we leave behind. So it's sort of more of a continuum that's constantly informing our lives. Uh, one story that I like to tell, uh, Nozaki Shange, who a lot of people are familiar with because she was an award-winning playwright, she wrote a book where she talked about teaching children in Trinidad, and she asked them all to write a story about themselves, and, and each one wrote an Orisha story because their lives were so connected to these sacred stories that they'd grown up with and they'd heard hundreds of times that 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 shaped their own identity and image of themselves and gave them a different context. You know, some of these stories, they almost remind me of fairy tales in a way, because some of these stories really are about the hardships of life and the hardships that the Orisha and the Loa faced when they were in human form, however temporary, and some of the challenges and how they overcame them and how it really informed them and their character throughout the rest of their lives. So again, just sort of gives us a context that like, you know, okay, we can connect to these energies and it can make our lives better, not in the sense that everything's going to be rosy and everything's going to be wonderful, but it's going to allow us to understand some of the challenges and difficulties that we do face and progress with faith and strength, knowing that, you know, we can navigate them successfully. Hmm. That sounds wonderful. Uh, now, in the introduction of your book as well, you talk about how some of the traditions that are mentioned focus on female deities. Was that a reflection of the societies that practice those traditions? Yes, I, I think it is. I think that, you know, if we look again back throughout what was written in history, it wasn't really her story. A lot of it wasn't told by women. A lot of it you know, the sacred things about women and, and, you know, the divine feminine was destroyed, you know, because people found it so dangerous. So I thought that 
this was really a labor of love. I wanted to write this book pretty much my whole life. And, and because of the way, you know, situations work, I wrote other things because that's what was more profitable in the minds of the people I was dealing with at the time. But this is what I really wanted to write because I think, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, who again, people are familiar with as a novelist and a folklorist, was also actually an anthropologist and a voodoo priestess who traveled to Haiti, you know, and she talks about the black woman being the mule of the world and having to sort of carry all these burdens for everybody. And I think that there's so little out there that really celebrates black feminine identity and black female spirituality. And I don't mean that in a gender binary way. I mean it in a, because a lot of these Arisha and Loa are not really gender binary. They're, they definitely have a fluidity to them. And some of their feminine characteristics are ones that have been historically thought of as more masculine, but in reality are part of the female character. So it was just a way to sort of highlight that and refocus it and present a different narrative that comes out of tradition that is not, you know, male dominated, Western dominated, you know, heterocentric and all of that. So, so that was really my ambition to sort of present a counter narrative with this work. Hmm. One thing I'm interested in is that in my own mind, when I, when I imagine Africa, I, I, I do see that sort of the, the map that is a, a post-colonial one. And I'm, I'm interested in how these areas looked and how they how these people interacted prior to that time and it seems like these traditions were a, a really important part of them I mean, I mean obviously they were but was there a transmission of ideas between these cultures in in regards to concepts like the Orishas and the Loas? Yes. I mean, that's one of the things that I find the most fascinating. You know, you look back and as early as the 1600s, there were people going from the Americas back to Nigeria and things like that to make sure they had the prayers right, to make sure they had the offerings right, to discuss some of the substitutions that they were forced to use in the Americas because some of the herbs weren't the same or some of the items aren't the same. You know, what you get among the Yoruba people in Nigeria is a much more sacred uh, practice in the sense of sacred that, you know, you can go to the Oshun Groves in Nigeria. They've been designated a World Heritage Site. And that's where the real seed of Oshun is said to lie. So people will make pilgrimages there and things like that. But again, if you think about, you know, a, a world where people were, you know, slavery and things like that were in place, you know, no, only the very smallest percentage of people were actually able to go back and do that. So you get a sort of, you know shifting of the traditions in the sense of, okay, well, you know, if you look at Cuba, no, a lot of those people didn't go back. And what Lakumi developed into was a sacred practice where we would use Catholic statues. You know, people talk about the version of Caridad del Cobre as being Oshun. So instead of going to the sacred place in Africa, the sacred grove, the sacred river, you know, you would use the river that you had and you would bring the Catholic statues because they wouldn't draw attention to you in such a way. You know, a lot of these practices were outlawed in Central America and North America and things like that. So this allowed people to still carry on those practices. 
And I think one of the things that people aren't necessarily aware of is, you know, some of these Catholic statues were hollow and what they would do would be to put the sacred items inside these statues. So when it was parading down the street and it looked like to all, you know, who didn't know, uh, you know, we're just having a Catholic ceremony for the Virgin, what it was, was there were sacred roots and herbs and shells and all her ritual items up inside this statue. So again, as I mentioned, the cot of Ashe, it was filled with the things that had her Ashe. So for people doing it, it was still a valid way of worshiping because they had her energy there. So there was this, and there still is today, you know, it's a very formalized tradition. And I think a lot of witches coming to it are not familiar with something that's so formalized because, you know, witchcraft was also something that was suppressed and maligned for a lot of years. And there is not necessarily as many teachers. You know, if we look at the ATRs, there's no real book that you can go to that says, this is the book that says everything and how to do it right. It was really an oral tradition and it still is handed down from teacher to student. That's why, you know, when we started, I made an important point to talk to you about, you know, some of the teachers that I've had. My teacher in Lakumi was Yeye Oshuna Lakari Alaye. And it was her Santo birthday today. And, uh, you know, she is now passed, but I miss her dearly. But, you know, it's you need to have those teachers because you need to know everybody's going to be different the same way that if, you know, somebody has something wrong with them, everything is going to be different. You know, you need a doctor or a teacher or a healer to diagnose what's actually happening, because just because this is wrong with you at somebody else could have the same set of symptoms and something completely different could be wrong with them. So you need to have that guidance through those things. And it really is past. It's almost like a parent. You know, I think of all my, my godmothers and my godfathers as, as parents to me. And I listen to them with the same respect and devotion that I would my real parents, actually probably more because my real parents were kind of crappy. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know they've been through the things I know they've been through the situations. And, you know, I, I was thinking about one of my godsons today when he first started coming to me, he was having a real hard time at work. And, you know, being a black man in America, his bosses were accusing him of stealing. And, you know, I just looked on my social media yesterday, and he actually, you know, we voted in New York yesterday, and he was actually on the ballot, he's running for office. And I was like, wow, that's just so amazing that he could go through I'm not taking credit for it. But I was there with him through all of those steps helping to guide him because, you know, I've certainly had times where I was having a rough time with my bosses and I've had times where, you know, now I'm talking to you about publishing the book, you know, we all have our ups and downs and sometimes we need help to get from point A to point B to point C successfully. And I'm so grateful to my godmothers and I'm grateful to my godchildren too, because I still learn things from them every day about how to navigate the world and what it is out there that people really need to know. Yeah, I, that sounds amazing. Um, how did these traditions survive when people were taken as slaves and moved to the Caribbean and America? Was it that oral tradition that helped protect their beliefs? Yeah, I think it was. It was definitely, you know, stories that were handed down in Lakumi. We call them patakis, which are the sacred stories, and they've been told over and over again. 
but because it's an oral tradition, then that's why you also get different variations of it. You know what I mean? It's like playing telephone when you were a little kid, you know, some things are going to get added. Some things are going to get taken out. Some things are going to get highlighted. Some things are going to get sort of, you know, downgraded because it's not important anymore, you know, in the context of things. So there is kind of this fluidity that goes on. I think there's also a real heavy emphasis on, you know, we're not just talking about sacred stories. There was sacred music. There was sacred dance. There was, you know, there's sacred hairstyles. There's sacred, you know, clothes to wear. There's so many different things that we could do to honor the Orisha. And a lot of that really has survived. Uh, thank, you know, goddess and everything else out there. I thank the Orisha and the Loa for being so strong, you know, but I, I think that that's why, you know, and it was resourceful. You know, it was resourceful in the sense of, as I mentioned, you know, like in, in some places like in Cuba, you know, it, it turned into Lakumi and, and, you know, the practices did sort of, at least on the surface, incorporate more Catholic ideas. Uh, the same is sort of true in Haiti. You've got a lot of people in Haiti that practice both Christianity and Vodou, you know, and, and that's sort of something that ran side by side for them. And, uh, allowed them to continue doing what it was they needed to continue. So it's, and as I mentioned, it's also real resourcefulness. You know, if you look about in Africa, there's something called cascaria, which is a root that they use for blessing. But now if you go into a big city, <clears throat> excuse me, a big city in, you know, New York or London or something like that, and you go in and you buy cascaria, what it is is powdered eggshell and it has the same function. You'll use it for blessing. It's called the same thing, but it's not the same root that they originally used among the Yoruba people in uh, Africa. So I think that there was definitely resourcefulness that happened, but that's not, you know, it wasn't just somebody going, oh, well, I'm too lazy to go to the store and get this thing. It was that, you know, okay, we don't have what we need right now. We, you know, we don't even have anything. We don't have any books besides the Bible because that for a long time was all that slaves were allowed to have if that, you know, so what can we do? Can we, you know, and, and it, it's always funny to me when somebody has the revelation that the Bibles, you know, the Psalms are really magic spells. You know, I remember once I was at a interfaith council with a bunch of, you know, Catholic priests and Christians, and I was the voodoo person. And it was a long time ago, like 25 years ago. And <laughs> they were talking about how important it was to still have the mass in Latin. And I was like, well, nobody will understand what you're saying. But I, I kind of had to backtrack over the years because I realized there really is power in the words. You know, there's power in the way those sounds are going out into the universe. And, and you know, enslaved people learn to use those phrases, those psalms in order to manifest certain kinds of change because they weren't necessarily allowed to still speak Yoruba. They weren't allowed to still speak Fon or, or the other languages that they learned, you know, and, and it's, it's really been a reclaiming, I think, for a lot of people, especially now, to go back to the traditional ways. I have a good friend, uh, Regine Romain, who made a film about going back to Benin called 
from Brooklyn to Benin, I believe is the name of it. But, uh, you know, she went back to sort of discover the roots, you know, through her Haitian heritage and what the practices still were there and bring that to the world, you know, and that's, and I did the same with my documentary talking about the sacredness of water. It's called Bodies of Water. And I made it about, you know, the water in New Orleans. I made it before Hurricane Katrina and the water in New York and how the water all over the world is connected. And that really allows people to stay, you know, and direct connection with the spirit just through these places and through this water. Mm. Talking about the, the syncretism, the blending of Haitian voodoo and um, Lakumi with, with Catholic ideology, I suppose initially that might seem odd, but like you were just talking there, people can be quite practical, can't they? And was it was it mostly a, a sense of practicality that kind of encouraged that, or were there were there aspects of Catholicism too that still resonated with the people that were merging these ideas? I mean, I think if you asked a hundred people, you get a hundred different answers. But my answer would be that yes, there was in the same sense. You know, we look at the cult of the saints and things like that. We look at, you know, somebody like Saint Teresa, the little flower who very often gets associated with the Orisha Oya in Lakumi. And I think there's a lot of characteristics of St. Teresa's life where, you know, she just had such a hard time and she was oppressed. And, and so many of these things that Oya stands for, you know, are also the kinds of things that people would turn to St. Teresa for. So it makes sense that if you know, they were presented with this image, you know, again, for the longest time, you couldn't get African images of Oya or things like that. All you had was the saint lithographs or the saint statues. So it allowed people to sort of have that characteristics, you know, St. Teresa has flowers and Oya is in charge of gardens and cemeteries to some extent. So I think the imagery also was really helpful for people that they could have that kind of imagery there. And then, you know, also how I mentioned that people do get deified in a similar way to the way people deify saints, you know, that they have good, and uh, Ifa, they call it good character or Iwapele. People have such good character and they live their life. And it's not an easy life, but they live their life with in the proper way, you know, doing the best that they can at, at all times. And because of that, they become honored and they continue to stay somebody we pay honor and respect to after they've died. So I think that that's something that is really big. And you get it a lot here in New Orleans. You know, I recently moved to New Orleans a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, there's a lot of legends and, and stories and sort of practical folk magic that people do with the saints here. At the Shrine of St. Jude, there's a giant statue of St. Expedite or St. Expedite, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I think because there was, there was also a large Italian population and they're really big um, on St. Expedite and St. Ex or however you want to pronounce it. And, you know, supposedly the story is this giant statue just appeared at the church one day and then people started using it for sort of, you know, it's called Expedite. People started using it when they wanted things to hurry up. They wanted their magic to hurry up. So they'd go to the church and leave some money in the box for him. And, and you can still do it. The church is still open, you know, and people go there to leave their offerings when they're trying to hurry up their magic a little bit. And uh, I think that that's fascinating. And I, I also think personally that when some of the people, yes, it was enforced 
obviously this Christianity. And, and I think that's going to be hard for some people who are devout Christians to hear, but it really was enforced on so many different levels, you know, even after slavery was over, you know, this was the one acceptable religion. I remember my father telling me after he went to the million man March for, uh, black men and sort of empowerment. He said it was okay for, you know, whatever God you were praying to, it was okay. It didn't matter if you were Muslim or Christian, but you had to have one God, you know? So he thought that was very interesting that you couldn't have these multiple energies, multiple deities. It was still forced on these black men that, that they had to have this monolithic, monotheistic culture that they were ascribing to. And, and this is something that was not done in Africa in any way. So this is something that was definitely foisted upon us. So <clears throat> staying in the confines of that tradition, you know, was advantageous. I mean, nobody wants to get dragged away in the middle of the night and no, and nobody wants their kids dragged away or, or any of that, you know? So I think that this was a necessity for so many people and it's just sort of stayed with us because it was the thing that you were allowed to have, you know? If I put a giant, when Marie Laveau had giant statues, you know, Catholic statues in her house, that was acceptable. If she'd had a giant statue that was more African-based, who knows how that would have went over, even though, you know, since this is a British show, I can say, you know, there's there's evidence that Queen Victoria went to Marie Laveau to get a reading and to get spiritual consults and stuff like that. Yeah. But who knows what would have happened if she hadn't embraced that kind of Christianity. She probably wouldn't have had the the social cachet that she did and have had the lasting power that she has today. So people do things and, and sometimes they, I, I, you know, sometimes it works. I'm sure we all know people that are devout Christians that pray to saints and that stuff happens sometimes, you know, and, and, you know, we could ascribe it to the saint, we could ascribe it to Christianity. And, and I think what a lot of people at the time saw was, Hey, this person prayed over here to this and they got it. Maybe I'll try praying over here to this and I'll get it, you know? Hmm, it seems like there can be personal religion and then there can be the more organized, larger group religions. I think people can practice both. And I, ima I imagine in the situation that, that those people found themselves in, it, it made sense to, to do that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely it made sense. You know, I mean, for survival kinds of, of reasons. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Um, so were there, were there other factors that affected the development of voodoo in places like Haiti and, and Lakumi in Cuba, that other, other cultural influences that affected the development of these practices other, other than Catholicism that was present in those places? Yeah, I mean, I think that there were certainly socio-political factors. You know, I, I've heard different stories on both sides of the fence about Castro and Cuba and how he felt about Lakumi and, and Santo practices there. You know, some say he supports them. There's, there's even, you know, there's been pictures of, you know, dressing a little Oshun Caridad del Cobre statue in, in combat fatigues, you know, <laughs> in order because, you know, whatever, they weren't the fondest of, of religion, but they were okay with, you know, Castro combat fatigue. So that was okay. So, and, and in Haiti, there was a lot, you know, I mean, all my Haitian friends talk about the persecution of voodoo and, and some of the, you know, 
again, negative aspects that were brought on politically and, and what they had to live through during the 80s and, and the, you know, Duvalier regime and, and stuff like that. So th- that was definitely a factor. You know, a lot of stuff was destroyed by the political regimes. A lot of people had to go underground even again. So there's certainly been a lot of times where people had to sort of change the character of what they did. And, you know, it's it's a secret tradition anyway. I mean, it, it to me, it's like the chicken and the egg. You know, it was hidden because of slavery, but it existed before that. So we'll never really know 100% how open it was before that. But, you know, having to deal with oppression and, and, you know, colonization and all of these other things and, you know, being, you know, competition for economic resources and everything else like that. You know, I I remember once I was doing a ritual and I said, well, you know, this ritual costs money. I'm feeding everybody afterwards and I'm buying, you know, dozens of candles and, and, you know, all these other things that go into the ritual. So I'm going to, you know, pass a plate around for donation afterwards. And people were horrified. They were like, that's what the Christians do. We can't pass around a donation plate. That's disgusting. You know, and I was just like, really? It's disgusting. You know, like you want to have this good experience, but you don't want to pay for it. And I think that's something that's that's really, you know, well, a lot of people are talking about that right now. But I think that's something that probably hurt the religion, you know, almost as much as as, you know, being enslaved and oppressed that we we did never had the I mean, who has the resources of the Catholic Church? You know, (laughs) we never had a tenth of the resources of that. And it's always been a struggle. You know, again, I think because it's there's no centralized body. There's only been efforts really recently to sort of unify the practices on some level. In Haiti, they they named an official, they call it an Ati, an official ambassador of voodoo that deals with voodoo outside Haiti matters, outside of Haiti. And uh, he just performed, I believe, I apologize, it's early here, but if I get this wrong, but I believe he just performed the first legal Haitian voodoo wedding not too long ago, like in the past year. So, uh, you know, even though everybody knows, oh, yeah, Haiti's famous for voodoo, Haiti's famous for these practices, and that's what people do. It wasn't really allowed by the state there up until very, very recently, you know, so... I I think that that's been a struggle on so many different levels. You know, my priestess here, the New Orleans Voodoo Spiritual Temple, you know, she's designated a church. But again, that was a struggle, you know, to get designated as a church and, and a nonprofit organization. And, and whereas, you know, people that are traditional churches, you know, it's, it's not half as hard. So this, it's, there's always going to be an economic component to it as well. And I think that comes from both sides. I mean, it comes from the Christian people have a thing to it. And I've also met a lot of resistance within traditional witches and the whole legacy coming from Gardner and everything about, you know, what you're supposed to pay for and, and, you know, spirituality should be free and all of those kinds of misconceptions, really, if you look at history. But this is something that over time has been ingrained in people, especially in the past 20 years. And now it's how people think. But uh, I can't help but say it all costs a a lot of money and you know you pay a lot of money for a doctor you pay a lot of money for a lawyer if you're going to a priest or a priestess for advice about medical things or advice about legal things or advice about love like all of that you know comes with a price and and i think it's disrespectful to not really understand that hmm. i mean 
I suppose the good thing about a living tradition is that it can adapt and evolve, but also evolve alongside forces that are that hinder that progress. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely hinder it. Yes, yes, yes. Unfortunately, and uh, you know, I mean, both of those systems that we're talking about were really oppressed. So it always, I find it, you know, painfully ironic that they turn around and oppress others. You know, it's like, wait a minute, this happened to you and (laughs) now you're turning around and doing it to somebody else because you think, you know, I had a neighbor tell me once when I told her I practice Vodou, she turned around and went, well, at least you don't practice Santeria. And I was like, excuse me, you know, well, I do. And, you know, you have this misconception about it being, you know, these evil animal slaughterers and all of that, you know, negativity, you know, I mean, people love to, my priest says, people love to focus on the lowest common denominator and they really do. And when something goes wrong in one of those traditions, they focus on that, you know, I mean, if everybody judged, you know, Catholicism on every bad priest, there would be no more Catholicism at this point, but that's not what they do. And, but yet we're forced to sort of take this because there's one crazy person over here who might've slept with his God child, which is against the tradition, mind you, or there's one crazy person over here who might've, you know, done something unfortunate with, you know, money or something, you know, it's like, we're just always taking that back. And, and I, I don't think that's fair at all. Hmm. When you were writing your book, how did you decide what to include and what to leave out? Because I, I imagine there was a huge amount that you could have added to the book as well that you, you didn't include. Was it was it difficult to sort of decide what to include? It was a little bit. I mean, I, I'm a Aries sun sign, so I'm usually really brief and concise. So if anything, it was probably hard to get that many words out about it because... For me, there's a way in which you can say too much, and that uh, allows people to think you've said everything. So because I could never say an everything, my, I usually just err on the side of caution. You know, it, it's it's very important to me to present something that provokes thought and allows people to have their own experiences from that point. So on that note, it was kind of a little bit difficult. I wanted to highlight some of the things that were out there so people could understand the Ashe of Oshun through, say, music, you know, and I talk about some of the artists, you know, there's a a famous group uh, duo called Ochun. There's also Ibiji or Ibiye, uh, the duo who sings a wonderful song, Come to the River, about Ochun. You know, so I wanted to include some of that from popular media and things like that in a really positive vein. I also wanted to include sacred art because this is something I think that people experience and don't necessarily understand the depth of what's happening there. I wanted to include some of the offerings that are traditional that people leave. I wanted to, you know, stress repeatedly how important it was to get a teacher just because, you know, some of these things are very intense. And, you know, there's been a way that they've been done for, as I mentioned, you know, since 400 BCE and probably before. So if we're looking at almost 2,400 years of doing something in a certain way. So I wanted to stress that there is a lineage and it's important to be part of this lineage the same way it's important to be part of a family. Those people will have your back. Those people will tell you, you know, what to do in certain situations and and how to navigate certain situations. So I wanted to put that in there. 
there was more I wanted to put in. I mean, I know it's called Arisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens, and there's not that many goddesses in there. So, <laughs> but it was sort of a choice to keep it to mainly the Arisha and the Loa and the Voodoo Queens that have been famous throughout time, just to sort of highlight this sacred feminine in an African traditional religious context so people could move on from there. But yeah, I would have put more recipes in there. I would have put more everything else like there. So it was a little bit of a struggle. But also, you know, I have my blog, Voodoo Universe, which has over 600 posts on there now. So on, on one level, I'm like, yeah, I've written a lot about this, but I could probably still go and continue to write more for the rest of my life. When I did the newsletter, the man who wrote my reviews, his name is John Gray, and he wrote a book called Ashe, which is a 600-page annotated bibliography, and I think he wrote it in the 80s, but it was every work that he could find about, you know, ATRs and, and creative endeavors in the ATRs, and it's six-point type, so it's this little teeny thing, it's hundreds and hundreds of pages, and he told me once that he could write about the ATRs for the rest of his life and never be done, and that's what he found fascinating about it, because there's always more, you know, if you go to one Ile or home for a spiritual house they'll do things in a certain way and you go to another one and they'll do things in a different way and both of those are correct you know the same way that if your grandmother told you how to make this recipe a certain way she was right that's the way she taught you how to make it so that's what's right for you but if you went to somebody else's house maybe their grandmother had different recipes or different ingredients that they used and that's what's right for them so just Getting that concept in there in a way that people could understand, I feel like was difficult because I wanted to highlight the importance of it, but also not seem repetitive. You know, I didn't want to feel like people give me this reputation as the angry priestess, but, you know, <laughs> I have to say it because if I look on social media, people will go, oh, well, you know, I see this book about Orishas. Don't just learn about Orishas for a book. You need to have a teacher. And I'm like, well, I said this in the book. I said it like <laughs> probably half a dozen times. And if you looked at the book, you'd know that's what it says, you know. So that was hard. Mm, I can imagine. Just going back to what you were saying a little earlier, what what is the difference between an Arisha and a goddess? Uh, I make the distinction in the book because there are a lot of Arisha devotees that say they're not as goddesses. And that, I think, does come from a place of, you know them also still being monotheistic on some level and only having one God so that the Arisha are separate from God the same way that the saints are separate from God in a Christian perspective. So people make a distinction that they're not having other gods and goddesses, they're having Arisha. So that allows them to still function in the confines of Christianity without, you know, having other gods before them as, as the, you know, verbiage goes. So I, I think that that's the distinction that I make. But for those of us who might be more used to an anthropological perspective, like I said, I have my undergrad and, and, you know, I did also did a master's program that was based in anthropology for a large extent. They function like gods and goddesses. And that's why I also kept that language in the book, because for those of us who are looking at it from that perspective, or those who might be coming from a pagan perspective or a witchcraft perspective, they do in a lot of ways function the same way as a goddess, but I didn't want to offend anybody. And, uh, 
call them goddesses because that there would have been backlash within the community because the Orisha and the lower are not gods and goddesses as we perceive them. There is that distinction. And I think mainly by people who are still also practicing Christianity. Mm. Some of the beings that you talk about, they, I mean, it's interesting that they connect to things like rivers and you talk about, uh, oh yeah, there's a, a goddess of the wind and a snake, snake goddess as well. These are all very archetypal forces that these beings represent. Yeah, they are. They definitely are. And I think that's a way that people can really understand it. You know, I also just finished a book about water magic that's coming out in October, you know, and if you look at all the Selkie legends from Celtic mythology, you know, you've got this shape-shifting thing and, and Oya definitely has a shape-shifting thing where she sheds her skin and, you know, walks around in human form for a while and goes to the market and buys some stuff and Shango falls in love with her and, you know, tries to steal her skin. And I, I think this is something that we see cross-culturally, you know, and again, it's the chicken and the egg. Well, we're never really going to know whether it came from point A or, or point B. And, and I'm happy to, you know, listen to anybody who wants to argue one way or another. But as from my academic standpoint, I don't think you can really, you know, find, find an origin for it. It's just fascinating to me that both of these cultures have this concept that somebody who can shape shift and, and it becomes an object of, you know, divine love and power and how we navigate the different forms that we take you know, both personally and professionally, Oya's in charge of the marketplace. So the fact that she slips off who she really is to enter into this business context is fascinating. And the fact that, you know, he goes and tries to capture her skin, literally, because he loves her so much is also another fascinating concept that, you know, we can give away parts of ourselves through love. And, and we can sort of, if we're not careful, hostage parts arts of ourselves through love and you know can we navigate that back to a place of comfort and safety where you know eventually in the story he gives her her skin back and and they get together and you know they have their time together and then they have their time apart and th and that's how they work that situation out and for children of Oya for them to figure that out in their own lives times where they shape shift between business and personal times where they change and chameleon into different things and stuff. And, and even, you know, magically, I found it fascinating because it took me a long time to sort of make that connection between the shape shifting was also magically the same connection between invisibility because invisibility is just another form. So again, we've got this level of how we can navigate the world, both as highly visible or invisible and what we choose to do with that on a daily basis. Mm, um, I, I know the, the concept of something shape-shifting and, and having its skin captured is across cultures. Uh, I, I know that from um, Scottish folklore, there's a selkie, which is a, a sort of a seal lady, and, and she'll take off her seal skin and become a woman. And there's traditions of, of a man stealing her skin and, and making her become his wife. It's, it's interesting how there are, there are these similarities across cultures. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my uh, maternal grandmother was Scottish and uh, there's a fantastic book. It's been out of print for decades now, but it's called The Devil's Own Mirror. And it, it talks about the sort of Afro-Celtic connection that there's so many of these different things that we see in the mythologies and stuff like that. And, and as I said, some people would probably say that came from, you know, 
the colonization and, and some of the slave trade and things like that. And, you know, obviously I'm sure some of it did, you know, I mean, even if we look at voodoo dolls, you know, I mean, there really is no evidence of that kind of thing coming into African practices until there's, you know, back and forth contact between Celtic people and African people, you know, and, and poppet magic and things like that, you know, in, in Africa, what you see is, is dolls used for more healing than you do used for this kind of magic where you're going to, you know, try and harm somebody. So it was definitely this kind of shifting of what the practice was, you know, and, and I find all of that fascinating, obviously, you know, as someone who has both Scottish heritage and African heritage. Sometimes I think that rather than there being a transmission of ideas literally in the physical world, it's just that these ideas exist in the spiritual world, like these or in the non-physical world. They're kind of universal ideas that you, people can engage with, and and that can inform traditions across across the planet without there being direct personal interaction. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, you know, Sheldrake and, and morphogenetic resonance. And I'm so happy I'm on a podcast. I can talk about that. But, you know, this concept that once, you know, one person or one human learns it, then it's easier for all other humans to learn it, you know. And this is something that he demonstrated over and over again. So there really is this kind of, you know, cosmic awakenings that can happen and, and cosmic connections that can happen on a so much of a different level than I think what our front linear your brain really allows for, you know, and to me, that's where the magic is that we can, you know, have these things and have these connections and move forward. Mm. Um, going back to your book, there's, there's a chapter where you talk about Nana Baruku and you, and I know from the introduction of the book, you describe her as a being that's especially relevant in these current times. Can you just talk a little bit more about her? Yeah, she she really is one of the sort of primal ancient foremothers. When we look back, she's one of the earliest, you know, energies, deities, whatever phrase you want to call it, is that that's worshipped. And she has a lot to do with healing. And when we look back, you know, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a Babalawo priest in Ifa, and we were talking about how all her tools are made of wood. And, you know, we had that little revelation where it was, wait a minute, they're made of wood because she even predates metal that mm -hmm. like the, the metal technology was, uh, you know, around came around after her worship. So it, it was it was very interesting that we could still see that again. How many years is that? 10,000 plus, you know, so we're looking at, you know things that go back to such ancient times. And she really is associated with this divine mother. And I think she's important today, both as a champion of women and a champion of women's rights and, and uh, that sort of foremother to everyone. You know, if we look back to the earliest female ancestors we all had, it's like she was standing there with them and, and that's the energy it is. And she's also seen as if we look in the Orisha stories and the Orisha logic, she's seen as the mother of Babaluaye, who is the Orisha of infectious disease. You know, uh, for when I grew up, it was always said he was in charge of smallpox, but I'm sure we could all think of another infectious disease people have right now that a lot of people are praying to Babaluaye for, that there's this kind of context where we can, you know, honor her and honor him and find our way to healing, even though there is a new disease, but through this ancient spiritual practices that we can do this. You know, my godson called me, uh, his father got, 
he's an older gentleman and his father got COVID right at the beginning when it first started to happen. He's a Latin man, you know, and I gave him the Babalu IA things to do for healing. And I gave him the stuff to do to heal himself and his dad, you know, and, and he's a nurse as well. So he obviously also, you know, went with the traditional medicine things that, that he had to do to protect himself and to help heal his dad. And I'm happy to say that his dad's recovered and the rest of the family, Knockwood, are all still doing really well. So I think that, you know, if we can combine our spirituality also with, you know, effective medical practices to the best of our abilities, that's our best chance at being successful, you know, in, in any situation, not just with healing, but in anything that we're dealing with. Hmm. If someone's at the point where that they're really interested in voodoo or any other of these traditions that we've been talking about, um, but they're not sure where to start, well, well, what would you recommend to them? Well, I mean, I talk about... Buy your, buy your book, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I never want to be that person who says, <laughs> buy the book, you know, because I know, again, I have certainly been in a point in my life where I couldn't afford the, you know, few dollars for the book. I mean, it's not a fortune or anything, but, you know, sometimes things are hard, especially these days. A lot of people are out of work and stuff like that, you know, but I do also have a post on my blog about how to find godparents how to find a teacher. You know, there's a lot of really good stuff on my blog that just sort of explains things and how you can go through it. And I think people throw their hands up instead of taking and go, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know, I make a joke like I've done nothing and nothing happened. You know, you, you have to do something, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, oh, well, I'm going to set up an altar to Oshun and I'm going to do this. But you can light a candle. You can light a candle and ask your ancestors to help you with guidance, to help you with direction, to help you find a teacher, to help you find what it is you need right now. You know, it's it's not necessarily all about rushing out and, and you know, building these altars or initiating. And, and you know, if that's going to be what's in the cards or, or on the path for you, then that will happen when it needs to happen. If you have your mind open and, and, you know, maybe you extend your comfort zone a little bit, you know, I, I, I found one of my priestesses, my Haitian mambo, Bonnie Devlin, I was working at a UU church and, uh, Rhode Island and I was teaching intro this was 20 odd years ago I was teaching intro to tarot and intro to uh astrology and and all of these things you know and it was great and uh they called me in one day and they were like oh well we got a new a new UU minister at the church and and Bonnie's also a Unitarian Universalist minister she went to Harvard and uh She's like, and she's also a, a Haitian mambo. And I was like, wow, that's great. You know, it was like she showed up in my life at the most beautiful time. I really, you know, I wasn't living in New Orleans like I am now. I was far away from all my godmothers. And I really was going, my daughter had, my youngest daughter had passed and I was going through a really rough time. And I really needed somebody there, you know for me on a regular basis who was close and, and, you know, she'd never really had any godchildren before. And, and she definitely got the feeling that, you know, we should start, you know, working together and, and I would be her goddaughter. And I just think it's such a beautiful thing. You know, uh, my other priestesses, I, you know, I prayed and I looked and I, you know, extended my comfort zone. I went to things where I thought they might be. And I asked humbly and, uh, you know, it all worked out. It all worked out. So I, I think that, you know, yes, there's people that are going to be out there and listening to this and they want to study and they want to do it respectfully. And I think that's beautiful. And uh, 
The other thing I do have to say, though, is it's not necessarily going to be easy. People write me a lot and say, oh, I don't have anybody that's in my backyard, you know. Well, until I moved to New Orleans, 1,400 miles away from where I was living, I didn't have my, you know, godmother in my backyard either. My godkids, you know, some of them lived 1,000 miles away from me. Some of them still live 1,000 miles away from me, you know. But when they have a vacation and they have the extra money, we take the time to make those visits happen and make the rituals happen. You know, it's not necessarily going to be something really easy. But, you know, anything good in life isn't necessarily easy. Mm, well said. Is there a particular favorite entity being that you have from the book? I mean, I talked a lot about Oshun, and I'm a child of Oshun, so I do love her dearly. Love her absolutely, completely, uh, truly, madly, deeply. And uh, But I, my own spiritual house, I have my own spiritual house, as I mentioned. I have my own god kids. And uh, we get together for feasts and initiations and blessings and, you know, just to hang out and whatever every once in a while and talk about stuff and be in a positive atmosphere. And uh, that is dedicated to Maman Brigitte. And Maman Brigitte is a deity that's both in Haitian voodoo and here in New Orleans voodoo. Uh, she takes more of a prominent place here in New Orleans voodoo, I think, because there was a large influx of Irish in the 18th and early uh in the 1800s and the early 1900s so a lot of them were worshiping Brige and and you know there were a lot of crossover things they are separate deities i will say this there's a lot of fools out there on the internet that say they're the same thing they're not the same thing they just have qualities that are similar and i think that both the New Orleans people who were worshiping Mama and Brigitte and the Irish people who were worshiping Brige found out that they could have, you know, some sort of crossover and a place where they could meet and, and that could be together and, and, and that could be okay, you know, so... And I have a lot, uh, you know, I have one goddaughter that does British trad Wicca and, you know, that that was appealing to her. We do a lot of ancestor work because Mama and Brigitte is seen as the first female buried in every cemetery. Like Nana Baluklu, she's sort of seen of as everybody's grandmother, great-grandmother, foremother, you know, who's there for guidance and protection. She's really a champion of the oppressed. She's a champion of abused women and children. She's a champion of anybody who can't get traditional justice for whatever reason, you know, because of their socioeconomic status, because of their skin color, because of whatever, you know. And uh, I, I think she's become more popular these days because everybody likes this image of, you know, a skeleton bride, which is how she's usually depicted in art and the media. So people like this image of, you know, this skeleton with roses in its hair that, that you know, comes to save the day and, uh, you know kick everybody into uh, submission. Mm. Yeah, my mom, my mom, Brigitte, was one of the one of the characters that really stood out for me as well when I was when I was reading through the book. I'm really interested in the idea of these deities, these beings from different traditions meeting and how they how they interact with each other. I, you know, if, if, a, if a people are moved to a different part of the world or, or, or moves there and they bring their traditions with them, how those different traditions interact on a, on a sort of an astral level. No, it's true. And I think that, you know, even though I'm certainly the last person to talk about cultural appropriation as being something that people should look to, 
I think that there's a way where, as we were talking about before, you know, if you're leaving offerings for Maman Brigitte and, you know, using the stream that runs next to the cemetery when you're here, you know, in America, and then you move to Ireland and you're sitting next to the one of the sacred wells of Brigitte, like, is that still going to be sacred water? You know, I mean, obviously I would consult your priest or priestesses. Obviously I would do divination, even if it's just dowsing rods or a pendulum to see if it's okay to use that water. But I've been to, you know, I, I, I've been to some of the sacred wells and the sacred sites in Ireland. We went to some of the, you know, passage tombs and whatnot. A very dear friend of mine took me in there. And it was very similar energy to me to some of the things that we have from Mama Brigitte here in America. Mm. Well, Lilith, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's, you know, I'm such an Anglophile and I lived over there and my daughter lived over there. And I love being able to be on a podcast that's, you know, British and not American. Ha ha. I'm happy to be of service. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. If people want to find out more about you and the book and your work, how best do they do that? Uh, they can find me on social media, Lilith Dorsey. They can go to my website, LilithDorsey.com. They can check out, there's an excerpt of the book. The chapter about Oshun is up on my website, Voodoo, I mean, my blog, Voodoo Universe, which you can just search that and I'll pop up. So yeah, that's the best way to find me. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about things with people. If anybody wants to get a reading, you know, that would be great too. So uh, yeah, thank you. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to include all that information in the show notes. Wonderful. Thank you. I'd hoped to do an episode about voodoo for a while, as it felt like a subject that was fitting for the podcast and was something I wanted to learn more about too, as my understanding of it was pretty limited, not much beyond how it is presented in pop culture, which is often far from accurate. Trying to find the right guest wasn't easy, but once I became aware of Lilith and her work, I knew I'd found them. I was always hopeful that she might agree to be a guest for such an episode, so it's great that it has happened now. I know that this wasn't exactly an episode on voodoo, but I think that what we talked about is a great starting place for anyone like me who doesn't know very much about these sorts of traditions, but wants to. I heartily recommend getting a hold of the book if this sort of stuff is your jam, and Lilith's website is fantastic too, with plenty of other resources available to expand your knowledge. Most importantly, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If so, please consider sharing it on social media, or rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts, or both, as it really helps to promote the podcast to new listeners. If you'd like to get in touch with me at SphereHQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms, where you can follow and subscribe. Until next time, be safe and well, and as always, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>